Today on Peace Talks Radio, the many mass public shootings and street violence in the United States in recent years present a challenge to victims' families, as well as to us all. And a spokesman for the Pima County Sheriff's Department says that among the victims, or included in the victims, are at least 12 people. What are we to do with all the grief, upset, and outrage? I woke up and, and I just started thinking about something to do about it. Today we'll hear the stories of three people, all touched differently by gun violence, but all moved to activism. I called up the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence at the end of the day and said, I want to help, I want to share my story, I want to talk about these issues so that other people can, can learn about them. You know, is there any place for me? We focus on the personal journeys of these people who decided to do something to promote peace in their world when gun violence touched them. Just talking to other parents and trying to help them understand they can make it, I mean, it helps them, it helps me. Coming up today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. If random gun violence were to personally shatter your world, how would you respond? Um, at that point, he, he takes his gun and he walks, he walks a little further, takes a couple steps and he points it at me. Twelve people killed and 58 injured, 70 victims in all. Could you turn your personal upset, grief, or fear into action? Action that might help preserve the peace and make a difference in reducing violence in our communities? What if the violence didn't personally affect you, but merely the news of some violence shocked you, as it does many of us? Police say Adam Lanza killed his mother and then opened fire in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, killing 26 people, 20 of them children. Would you be able to transform that upset into some action that you thought might actually change things for the better? I'm Paul Ingalls, and today on our program, we'll hear the stories of three people. First, Colin Goddard, a survivor of the mass shooting in 2007 at Virginia Tech University where 32 were killed by a disgruntled, highly armed student. So far we know that the gunman remains publicly unidentified, but Virginia Tech's president says that he was a student of Asian descent. The shooter was carrying two handguns. He used one of them to take his own life. I mean, I was on the phone with the police in the beginning. You know, the the phone got thrown out of my hand, and it landed next to a girl next to me, Emily, and she remained online with the police the entire time. I remember anecdotally telling Emily to be quiet. And I thought that, you know, he would know that there are people in the back who are still alive. Second, we'll talk with Annette Nance Holt, the mother of an innocent 16-year-old boy who was shot and killed on a Chicago City bus just one month later in 2007. Another view, the horrified passengers hit the deck to avoid the gunfire that would wound five of them and kill Blair Holt. We were always concerned because so many innocent young people were getting gunned down in the city of Chicago. I mean, these young people were in the right place at the right time and doing all the right things. And here you go, a teenager with an illegal gun or somebody just shooting wildly and they always missed their target and hit somebody else innocent. In a rampage beyond comprehension, the killer stalked Sandy Hook Elementary School, taking innocent lives that had barely begun. And third, we'll meet Scott Cameron, an Albuquerque father of two boys. When he heard of the mass shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012, although he was 2,000 miles away, he began to organize in his own community, setting up events he thought might reduce the chances of a Sandy Hook happening in his city. I remember it was on a Friday. Next day, uh, I woke up and, and I just started thinking about something to do about it. You know, what? how is there some way to 
do something with this grief and with this heavy heart and this sadness. The debate over how to reduce gun violence is an ongoing one with many fronts. Gun laws, mental health issues, violent portrayals in the media, just to name three. Our episode today is less about the debate around specific policies, although our guests have their own particular emphasis that they each pursue. Our program is more about their personal journey to decide to do something to promote peace in their world after gun violence touched them in some way. First, Colin Goddard, who, at the age of 21, in 2007 survived the mass shooting by Sung Hui Cho at Virginia Tech. Goddard recalled it all for a film produced with funding from the Brady Center to End Gun Violence, where Goddard was working when we interviewed him in 2013. The film is called Living for 32, the number of people killed by the gunman that day. I was in the right place at the right time. I was in class. We started first hearing loud banging noises coming outside of our classroom. Uh, the teacher went to the door to look into the hallway to see what was going on and making all that noise. And as soon as she opened it, she shut it back again and said, everyone get underneath your desk and somebody call 911. I pulled out my phone and dialed 911. I said that we were in Norris Hall. There's, I think there's a shooting going on. And as soon as I basically got that out, we saw bullets coming through our door. Everyone jumped underneath their desk and went to the floor. You're seeing uh, police out with their weapons drawn, students out looking, trying to see what's going on, running out of buildings. All the major doors to our building were chained shut from the inside, and they had a sign on them that says, if you open this door, we'll explode. I came full circle with the situation when I was shot the first time in my left knee. Sure enough, you feel that sensation of a huge push and a sharp sting, and you feel the blood kind of trickle down your leg and you feel it kind of warm on your body. And then the bangs just got much louder again. You could tell he was back in our room. This time he more methodically came down each of the rows and was still firing. At one point he was standing at my feet, and that's when I was shot a second time in my left hip. Some gunshots. He shot me the third time in my right shoulder and then it flipped my whole body around and I exposed my right side and I was shot for a fourth time in my right hip. It seems that I only remember a couple more gunshots after that and then everything got quiet. And as soon as the police came into the room, they said, shoot her down. And that's when I was like, shoot her down? What? I didn't know that he had committed suicide in the front of our classroom. Soon after that, the police and the medic staff came in and began their triage of all the students laying on the floor. And I remember hearing him walk up to people, say, this person's yellow, this person's red. And then I heard black tag, black tag, black tag. And that's when I realized that there were other students in here who didn't make it. A clip from the film Living for 32, you heard the voice of Colin Goddard, a survivor of the 2007 Virginia Tech mass shootings. Goddard also talked with our Carol Boss in 2013. At what moment did you decide to work to prevent gun violence. I know you went through very intensive um, medical care and rehab, but do you remember that moment? I do. I do. It was April 3rd, 2009. It was two years, just about two years after the shooting that I was involved with. And during that two years, I had learned a great deal about what happened at my school. I mean, obviously, anytime something crazy happens to you, you and your life. You want to know how did this happen? Why did this happen? Especially parents. You know, you learn a great deal about the about the school policies. You know, the fact that 
It took almost an hour, over an hour and a half to send out an alert to the student body as to what had happened in the, the dormitory before the shooting happened in the classrooms. You know, mental health policies, the fact that this guy had actually been, you know, well-known for the, the campus counseling center and well-known to local law enforcement for stalking girls on campus, for making uh, strange threats and writing morbid uh, things in class. Um, and in gun policy, in the terms that, you know, this ultimately because of his behavior, he was brought in front of a judge and adjudicated to be a danger to himself. And with that adjudication, that prohibits you under federal law from owning a firearm until you get that adjudication reversed. But because he was told to then get outpatient therapy instead of inpatient therapy, his record was never sent over to the background check system. So instead of getting the therapy, he walked into the gun store down the road from our school and went over the internet and bought the Glock and the 9mm and a couple hundred rounds and ultimately came on our campus. And I learned something as simple as a file transfer you know, of a record could have altered the outcome of that day. I was kind of shocked, and I, and I wanted people to know, to know what I learned. But I just wasn't ready to tell it. And I, and I had heard of other shootings happen since the one at Virginia Tech. I mean, there was the big shooting at Northern Illinois University in early 2008, but I just couldn't watch it. But until that morning of April 3rd, 2009, two years later, after I had a great deal of knowledge about gun policy and mental health policy. I was looking for another job, just finished clerking the House of Delegates in Virginia and was sending out resumes and, and flicked on the television just as a story broke of a shooting in Binghamton, New York Civic Center. I think the way I naturally came to turn on the TV and see this, I, I didn't turn away like I had been before. I sat there and I watched the entire shooting unfold throughout the the entire course of the day as the police were running in and setting up the yellow tape and, and the body count started to come in with, you know, two people, three people, and then at the end of the day, I think it was up to 13 people. You know, it brought me right back to April 16th of 2007. It brought me right back to being in my classroom, knowing what these people were gonna, were going through knowing that their their loved ones and their family members were getting a phone call saying that they had just had a family member who's been shot. You know, can you come to the hospital as soon as you can? And I know that, you know, when I heard about, you know, people talk about gun policy in D.C., it was always de- considered dead on arrival. It wasn't going to go anywhere. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't address it. And I just, I just kind of like what gives. And watching that, all those emotions come back, coupled with what I learned and the frustration of, of, of inaction in in D.C. just kind of all came together and it just snapped in me. And um, I called up the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence at the end of the day and said, listen, you know, I've always followed what you've been doing. I couldn't get involved, but now I want to help. I want to share my story. I want to talk about these issues so that other people can, can learn about them. You know, is there any place for me? And they said, yeah, and I've been with them ever since. You must have known you were choosing a path that would have you retelling this very difficult story of yours every day, and um, I, I was wondering how hard that is. You know, at that point, two years, I had told my story a thousand times already. You know, I wasn't telling it to reporters. I wasn't telling it to media. I was telling it to my good friends, you know, my college classmates, my high school buddies. You know, I was getting the story off my chest very early on, and that, I think, ultimately helped 
get to the point where I can share my story with other people. You know, you tell it so many times, you kind of separate the st- the same series of events from the emotion of it. It's just the same matter of fact recount of what happened. Same spiel is what I used to call it. So the debate over violence and mass shootings sure. gets people talking about mental health issues, about broader ideas, about sure. a cultural of a culture of violence, uh, violent media. Why gun laws to work on rather than some of these other possibilities, uh, topics of conversation? Good question. Basically, it comes down to this. I mean, after mass shooting events and after any sort of kind of major mass trauma, mass violence incident, the first question is, why did this happen? You know, why did somebody choose to do this? Why, why could someone act this way? And in the case of Virginia Tech, the person who can answer that question killed himself in the front of my classroom. You know, there is no solid answer to the why question. So what became more answerable to me is how. How did this happen? How did this person actually physically carry out these acts? What did they have with them? What allowed them to do this? And it was pursuing the how. You know, at the same time, always curious of the why. I mean, the why is, in my opinion, a a much more broad area. I mean, particularly with gun violence, you know, it can range from mental health issues to bullying to an accident of children playing together and thinking a gun was a toy to depression, impulse suicide, things like that. But But the how is always the same. The how is this metal object in their hands that fires a bullet with the twitch of a finger. And the fact that, you know, background checks aren't done minimally across gun sales in this country was just something so fundamentally wrong and unjust, in my opinion, that I wanted to address it. And I saw a lot of progress being made with school policies. I mean, that's probably the one area that has had a revolution since Virginia Tech. That was a game changer for campus security. Mental health and gun policies were, were these much tougher areas. They weren't, they weren't moving. And I knew several other family members got involved with mental health, and I, and I just I felt like I wanted to get involved in, in gun policy the, 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 with, around the fundamental idea that we should do a background check before people buy a gun. I mean, if we want to get serious about keeping dangerous people from dangerous weapons— there's really no other way that you do that than intervening at the point of sale with a check to make sure these people don't have a dangerous past. And so the fact that we weren't doing that across the board just, just blew my mind. It was, I just didn't understand it. Um, I believe this was your decision to do hidden camera gun buying at gun shows. And um, how did that idea come about and, and why? I watched another Virginia Tech family is what I call them someone who was directly impacted by the shooting in 2007. And it was Omar Samaha. I lost his sister Rima in my French class. She was sitting not too far from me. And he paired up with a local um, affiliate here in Virginia, and they gave him a couple thousand bucks and told him to go to the gun show in, in Richmond and buy as many as he could, as quickly as he could. And so they recorded him walking into this show and then walking back out with literally a handful of guns. I mean, it filled up this trunk in less than an hour. 
when he would return to his car and dump the guns off, he would explain the conversation that he had inside. And I thought, well, you need to show that conversation. You need to make this even more real for the public who thinks this is already being done. And so I wanted to take the video camera inside. And so that was that was really the first that was the first activity I wanted to do with the Brady campaign is to make this issue real for people, to take it out of the, the talking points and the anecdotes, but to show the reality of, of what questions you're asked how to, to purchase a firearm in some cases, how little oversight is given. How you doing, sir? I wonder if we can see your Mahdi Egyptian. I'm looking at that thing. This thing is pretty diesel, dude. Pretty good? Yeah. Expanded stock. Put around clip. You want 660 for it? And then you keep going, and then, you know, every once in a while you'll see a guy that's got, you know, just a couple of guns on the table, doesn't really look that official, uh, doesn't have a computer, doesn't have a phone. You know, you go up to him, you start talking to him, and you ask him, you know, what do you got to do to buy this gun that he's got? And he says, you know, sometimes all you need is a license, and sometimes you don't even need that. If you tell him you don't have it, like I told him, you know, he's like, all right, well, that's all right. So this is what we brought today. A gun show in Ohio. With no background check. Uh, no license shown. Not a lot of cash. It's like these firearms are just like toaster ovens or sofas, something that can get them $300. And it's just, it's, and to me, it just, it's just fundamental irresponsibility. We need to have a conversation in this country badly about what is responsible gun ownership. You know, not only that mean when you when you own the gun and it's yours to keeping it safe and locked in home away from children or those that might have um, problems, but when you then sell the gun to someone to make sure that the person who's buying it from you can at least legally do so. I mean, that's it. And and the quickest way to do that is with like a 90 second background check. I have so many people come to the events where we show this film and think that this is going to be some anti-gun, no one should have a gun in America kind of thing. And, they're sh- and, and they come up to me afterwards and like, this is not what I thought this was going to be. And I own guns and I, you know, I was in the military and I hunt regularly. And what you're talking about, man, background checks, that's, that's cool with me. I, you know, it's not going to stop me from owning a gun, but if it's going to stop some person with a felony record, you know, then I'm all for it. I'll have a conversation about responsible gun ownership. And that's when you get 90% of America behind you. And we have this. We have the country understanding that background checks is good public policy. Now we just have to clean up the politics around it. What's your response to the argument to arm teachers or to um, have more police in schools and public spaces or that um, people believe concealed weapons should be allowed on college campuses? Fundamentally, I don't think we're going to shoot our way out of our problem with shootings in this country. Um, I think we can do better than that. And in my opinion, until we require background checks across the board on every gun sale, there really is no other step we should take. I mean, this is the most fundamental one that keeps dangerous people from getting their hands on a gun in the first place. This idea that if only we allowed more people to carry more guns in more public places in this country, then we would all become a safer place. If that idea was true, then, then would, would the country that already allows people to carry guns in, on the streets, in their homes, practically everywhere in the country, the country with 300 million guns in circulation already, I mean, in theory, wouldn't we already be the safest place in the world? And 
if you look at the numbers, we are in fact just the opposite of that. You have to take a public health approach and understand that any object that harms or kills another human being by its function, increasing your exposure to that object does not decrease the likelihood of injury or death. It increases the likelihood of injury or death. And people should have that right. Um, people should be allowed to purchase a firearm for their home if they like to. I support that idea. I support that concept. I support the Second Amendment. But people need to understand that it's while you have that right, sometimes it might not be the best option when you have young children, when you have someone in your home fighting a mental illness. That in bringing a gun into your home makes it more likely to be used in suicides, in homicides against another family member than in, a, in an intruder-type situation. That's just, that's just statistics. That's, that's data that has been covered up by the gun industry in previous years and when they blocked CDC and NIH from doing this research because what they were finding was that increasing your exposure to firearms increases the likelihood you'll get hit by a bullet. And that, does, that goes against the mantra of, you know, the gun is the ultimate protector. The, the gun is the only thing that's ever going to save your life or keep your, your child safe, which in fact it is, it, is, it is quite the opposite. We'll have more with Colin Goddard, a survivor of the mass shooting at Virginia Tech in 2007, later on Peace Talks Radio. But next, the mother of an innocent 16-year-old honor student killed in a shooting on a Chicago bus. She talks about her journey from crippling grief to vocal activist on gun violence issues when Peace Talks Radio resumes after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Hear this show again and all the shows in our series at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss today, and we're considering the many mass public shootings in the U.S. in recent years, which present a challenge to victims' families as well as to us all. What to do with the grief, upset, and outrage? As Colin Goddard, one of the Virginia Tech survivors from 2007, just told us, it took him two years of healing, then news of yet another shooting for him to join organized efforts to end gun violence. Now we hear from Annette Nance Holt of Chicago, who told Carol Boss she felt she and her former husband had already been active in addressing violence issues in their community, but the urgency of their efforts understandably increased when their own 16-year-old son, Blair, was shot and killed almost exactly a month after the Virginia Tech shootings in 2007. Annette Nance Holt helped form an organization called Purpose Over Pain. She told Carol Boss her story, starting with how Blair was killed. Oh, well, Blair was coming home from high school. Uh, he went to Percy L. Julian High School, 16 years old, a junior, and he boarded a public bus. 
um, that was crowded with a lot of high school students from his school and a lot of just people riding the bus coming home, adults. And um, a teenager boarded the bus and started shooting uh, toward the back of the bus um, at another gang member, who I guess he had a rivalry with or something. And uh, he ended up shooting five young people that day. And my son jumped in front of a young lady and he saved her life. But as a result, he died. And the four other young people, they lived. Was this a, a common thing that he took the city bus? Right. Uh, usually myself, my mom or my dad or his dad would pick Blair up every day uh, from school. On this particular day, I was going to see the color purple with my sorority sisters. And uh, Blair told me that he would be fine taking a bus to my parents' store in Rose, and they owned a small neighborhood grocery store. And he would work there every day um, helping them out. Tell us a little bit more about Blair, what he was like. Mm. <laughs> uh, Blair was, well, I can say very handsome young man, uh, very outgoing. Um, a lot of people looked up to Blair. Blair, being in high school, he would tell his fellow classmates, you know, make sure you get to class. He was very, very intelligent, and he didn't want a lot of people to know how smart he truly was. But he would just, I mean, he would inspire other people to do better in life. And I really didn't know how big of an impact he had on so many people until he died because a lot of his friends came forward, even his teachers. His teachers said, you know, if we had more students like Blair, it would be easy for us to teach in the city of Chicago. And so they were just, I mean, I was just so honored that other people saw in him what I knew I had. Uh, he was like very creative. He was sitting at home and write music. Um, he liked raps. And so he was being socially conscious when he wrote his raps because he noticed the blight in the communities, the drugs, the gangs, the guns. And he felt like politicians really didn't care what happened in urban areas. So he was very much ahead of his time and very loving and respectful of his parents. I mean, he was just that kind of kid, but he was a typical teenager. He loved to dress. Um, he loved to have the latest gym shoes, but he worked to get his things. Annette, with the homicide rate in Chicago being at probably several hundred a year and a sizable percentage of the victims are youth, were you ever fearful for the safety of your son? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was definitely fearful. Uh, being that I work for the fire department and his dad works for the police department, we were always concerned because so many innocent young people were getting gunned down in the city of Chicago. I mean, these young people were in the right place at the right time and doing all the right things. And here you go, a teenager with an illegal gun or somebody just shooting wildly and they always missed their target and hit somebody else innocent. What were your responses um, when when you would hear about shootings in the city prior to Blair's death? Well, number one, I was really concerned because around my dad's store in the Rosen neighborhood in the early 80s, we had a lot of young people being killed. And, you know, my dad and I, we would try to talk to these young people and my mother and try to say, you know, that's not the way. Violence isn't the way. Going to jail is not going to get you anything. When you come out of jail, you won't get a job. So we had been actively trying to change things before that. As far as uh, Blair and his friends, I would pick them up and take them places so that they weren't in, in danger or out in the streets or, you know, just somewhere they where they might get in trouble or hurt. So, I mean, we have always been doing things, you know, mentoring young people, going to schools. His dad and I, his dad did the Black Star Project. Black Star, they were, they mentor young people. They have a, 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 a building and they go out into the communities and then they have kids come in. They have a lot of volunteers that just help mentor young people. And they try to be like more like fathers to these young people because most of these young kids do not have fathers. They have them, but they're not actively involved in their lives or they're incarcerated. So, or they just totally walked out. Um, so Black Star is trying to fill the gap there. 
you try your very best to save your child, but you cannot control the guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. I'm guessing it took you quite a while to find your way after Blair's death. I had read in an article that it took you a year to move the pile of folded clothes he left on the dryer in your house. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, matter of fact, in his bedroom, his room still is the same. It is still exactly the same. I have not had enough energy to go up there and tackle that. Every time I try to tackle it, it's just, it's overwhelming. It really is. And I really would like to donate his things to kids or young people that would really appreciate them because he has very nice things and, you know, he took care of his clothes. Everything's hanging or folded, but it's just heartbreaking. I went from having a house full of life and energy and love to like nothing. Everything is just silence. It's, you know, it's almost deadly to be in this house because I'm just so used to him and his friends being here or Blair trying to cook or, you know, saying, Ma, take me here or let's go there. And, you know, he traveled with me. We went to Vegas and Orlando and, you know, we got to do a lot of fun things together. But when everything, everything just suddenly stops and you don't have a warning, you know, he wasn't sick. He got snatched from me. You know, I had had braces put on his teeth and we we talk about this all the time, myself and other parents. You know, we invested all this in our children. We invested our time, our love, everything to make sure they were successful. And they weren't, you know, they're sitting at they're laying in cemeteries. Annette Nance Holtz, did you go to support groups for yourself? Um, actually, when this first happened to me, um, the fire department recommended that I go to um, a counselor. So I went to this counselor and, um, you know, I kept, I went like three times in a row and I sat there and I, all I could do was cry the whole time until one time she asked me, what do you, what do, what do you love doing? And I was like, I love my son. I love doing everything I can possibly to make sure he's successful. And so she said, well, what activity were you doing before this? I said, I was learning to play golf. She said, well, you should play golf. I said, that was it for me that day. I could not talk to somebody who told me golf would solve my problem because golf ain't solved my problem yet. So I ended up going to a group called Parents of Murdered Children that's headed by um, parents who've lost their children to violence. And so there I found other people like me and they could understand what I was going through and not thinking like the answer is you might need medicine or you might need to uh, keep coming to this therapist or, you know, do some kind of fun thing like golf. It That wasn't the answer. I needed someone to tell me that what I was feeling was okay in that you know, chest pains and anxiety, that was all because of losing your child. You know, I have no medical history like that. So, you know, you worry, forgetting things. Someone said, you know, we forget a lot because we've been traumatized and people don't look at, you know, gun violence survivors as being traumatized. We talk about vets being traumatized. We're traumatized here in the city of Chicago. And imagine all the young people who are going to be traumatized by what they witness. What else from that group helped you? Um, you know what, just networking with them and being friends. Some of these ladies, I mean, they are, some ladies have been in six years. Some have been in seven years, but, um, a lot of us are around the same time. And there have been so many more that have come in behind us. So we actually started a group, um, called Purpose Over Pain, where a group of parents got together and we formed an organization of our own. And we actually do outreach to parents who've lost their children to violence. And that would be providing um, money for funerals or repasses, whatever services they need, finding cemeteries they can afford, or if they want to cremate, um, buying flowers and just talking to them saying, hey, you can call us anytime you need to. And eventually getting them over to that group, Parents of Murdered Children. 
Um, the other two things we do is common sense gun legislation. So we go around, we've been to DC, we've been to Springfield and Chicago and even um, New York with mayors against illegal guns and Brady campaign to prevent handgun violence. We've been everywhere talking about gun violence and how can we change this to make it so that innocent people don't die every day because guns are in, in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. And the third thing that we do is that we actually go out to community groups. We go out to high schools and grammar schools and even parent groups. And we talk about what gun violence does to families, to communities, the long lasting effects of gun violence. Annette, what do you say to a mother who is going through what you went through, the murder of your child? Really, I can tell them I'm sorry because they became part of a sorority. They didn't sign up to join. You know, so I, I just want to say I'm sorry because we failed them. If we keep getting more children murdered behind ours, we failed. We failed as as people, as a society, as the United States of America. We have failed. We failed to provide the most common right that we should offer people, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we haven't offered that. Our guest is Annette Nance Holt, the mother of Blair Holt, who was shot and killed in an act of random violence in Chicago 2007. Annette, not everyone can turn their pain outward to be active. How did you personally make that transition? Uh, you know, the first day uh, well, Blair was murdered, I, I think it's a Thursday, I remember coming home and just sitting up all night. I was numb. Then the reporters started calling and people started coming by. And, it, you know, I immediately just set up because, and I started speaking out because, number one, I'm that kind of person anyway. I've always been a person that spoke out against um, things that were unjust and unfair. And to have your only child taken from you and a good kid, I had to say something because Blair meant so very much to me. And I'm sure all kids mean a lot to their parents, but I just couldn't suffer in silence. I really couldn't. And people thought that the media took uh, advantage of me. No, they didn't. They gave me um, a voice. They gave Blair a voice. Blair wasn't just an African-American teenager who was a gangbanger like they want to tell us. You know, most of black kids are gangbangers or drug dealers or not in school. Blair was an honor student. He was respectful. He loved his parents. He worked. He helped other people. He had plans to be a college graduate and to go on and be successful in the business world. You know, these are things people need to know about children in urban areas and not just write them off as casualties of war because they're not. They are human beings. They have families. They have parents who work, a policeman and a firefighter. You know, most people would just want to write our kids off and say, hey, they're not worth it. But they are. I read in an article we talked about um, President Obama early in 2013 when he made um, a very impassioned speech about gun violence. And that was after, of course, Newtown. I think you commented that um, as impassioned as it was that people who they really need to hear from are the families of those who have lost children. Well, I think um, the parents of Newtown, they did get out there right away and start speaking. But my comment was that we have a Newtown here every month. You know, we have 30 kids killed. It could be monthly here or across the U.S. in different cities. We have been suffering this for a long time, and it shouldn't be that it's commonplace here. And then there, it's like, wow, that happened? We don't want to live like that either. That's the point that needs to be made. We, you know, we work every day. We pay taxes. We want our children to be able to go outside and play. We want them to go to good schools. We want them to go to college. We want them to have good jobs, just like any other community. 
And I think people just, and I just go right back to this. We keep writing off some certain individuals, certain groups, certain races, because we think it's the norm. It's not the norm. You know, we didn't grow up like this. I didn't grow up with my friends being killed and shot. I can't imagine what these young people are feeling. I know what I feel as a parent. In what ways have your efforts since Blair's death been effective? Well, you know, I think nothing comes easily in life. Nothing worthwhile comes easily in life. And I, I just know that growing up, my parents taught me that hard work and perseverance will lead to what you need in life. And I'm going to keep on that road. I know um, we haven't uh, we haven't got universal background checks yet, but it's coming. It's going to have to change. They want their guns. That's fine. Why can we not agree to universal background checks? No high capacity uh, magazines, no assault weapons. And all we want is for people to be safe and for people to be responsible gun owners. Your group Purpose Over Pain was active in the campaign over the last few years to urge President Obama to come to Chicago. Uh, Yes, he finally came here in 2013 and he spoke at Hyde Park High School. Yes. Then it turned around that night. One of the students there, her sister was murdered. I'm going to quote you right now from an article, a newspaper article I read um, from a Chicago paper that you said it was up to the community to take action now that Obama has visited. And that meaning that in the individual communities, uh, we know who has the, we know who has guns. We know who's selling drugs. We know the people that don't belong in our communities. And I think we got this silence that we won't speak up and we won't speak out. Now I can understand people being fearful of being identified as a person that, as they say, snitch. And that's not really a snitch telling somebody who's doing something wrong. But, you know, if we don't speak up in our communities, if we don't take back what is rightfully ours from these, I call them thugs, I call them hoodlums, whatever the word is. And a lot of people don't agree with that, but that's what they are because they're terrorizing communities. They're terrorizing children. They cannot come out. Old people can't come out. People won't sit on their porches. So it's really, really the fabric inside of us, how we were brought up says that we can turn this around. We've come from so many things in life that were against us. We can turn this around. We just need to take communities back one by one. Does your group look at ways to keep these youngsters from becoming thugs, as you call them? What ideas do you have about that? Yes, actually, we do. We actually go into high schools and we actually talk to young people about gun violence because a lot of young people think, and I think uh, they've been put out front with the gangs They think that they won't get the same time as somebody who's older. They think if they're minors, they won't be charged as adults. And that's not true. And it's a lot of things. They sit there and they've known that their friends are like they have guns. They're selling drugs. And we're telling them if you're affiliated with them, you're going to suffer the same fate they suffer. We just try to change their mindset. And we also offer mentoring where we have um, what we call uh, safe Saturday nights. And we bring in kids, uh, different age groups, all the way up to 21. And we have like a little basketball. We have some games. We have some crafts. We feed them and we talk to them about violence and making good choices, having plan A and plan B, you know, not just getting caught up with what everyone else is doing. So we're out there really, really trying to make a difference. And it is so much work out here for everybody to do, not just purpose over paying, but there is plenty of work to go around just for someone who's just the average neighbor, if it's just saying hi to a young person on the corner or just, you know, showing them some type of respect, that's all. It will change. It will change if we all actively take a a place in this. Are you seeing or feeling any impact, any improvement? I think we are. You know, a model is um, Auburn Gresham. 
And um, that's where Father Mike Flager is. And I go to St. Sabina, the faith community of St. Sabina. And uh, Father Mike over there, we he's taken gang members, brought them in for basketball. They have actually come together. Can you imagine having four or five, six different gangs under one roof, playing basketball and working out their issues on the court? I mean, that that's just one community making a difference. They haven't had all this shooting anymore. They haven't had all this gang rivalry anymore. And actually, some of the gang members or ex-gang members actually attend our church. And I mean, very nice young men. They just needed someone to care, somebody to say, hey, we got another option for you. Selling drugs, having guns, killing people, hanging on the corner. That's not the only answer to life. Some of these people, that's all they know. That's all they know. And we look at them, you know, because we haven't been exposed to it. Like, why can't they change? But we have to have viable options to ask someone to change. That's like asking somebody who makes $100,000 to take a job that pays $10 an hour. It's not going to happen. We got to have viable options for young people and we have to show them something different and give them a skill or a trade that will make them successful in life. And, and I mean, this is a multifaceted approach that needs to take place as well as better education in the schools, especially in urban communities and putting back trades in schools and putting back music programs and different options. Annette, on a, on a personal note, um, I'm sure the pain never goes away. I'm I'm wondering though, with all that you've been doing and the impact of your work and the work of of others, does how does that make you feel? Do you find some happiness in that? I don't know if you find happiness. I think you find busy work, and I think you want to keep moving, especially when you lose everything. And when you lose your only child, you lost everything. I'm sorry to say, and I know other people have lost a child, and they have other children, and they feel bad. You know, but I don't have that driving force anymore in here that I have to get up. I have to do this. I have to do that to take him places and make sure he's doing what he's supposed to do. So by giving back and helping other people or trying to make a difference, it actually helps me on the other end. It's it's a sort of a cathartic healing. It really is. Um, just talking to other parents and trying to help them understand they can make it. I mean, it helps them. It helps me. It's just like teaching. When you teach, you're teaching yourself as well. And basically, that's what giving back is about. Tell the ones who hear no sound whose sons are living in the ground. Peace on earth. No, who's the wise? No one cries like a mother cries for peace on earth. She never got to say goodbye to see the color in his eyes. Now he's in the dirt. Part of U2's song, Peace on Earth, we heard from Annette Nance Holt of Chicago, whose son Blair was shot dead on a CTA bus in 2007. The gang member who killed Blair and injured four others as he fired into the back of the crowded bus, missing his target, was found guilty and sentenced to 100 years in prison in 2009. Next on our program, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings in Connecticut in 2012 give rise to a Families for Peace movement 2,000 miles away in New Mexico. We'll hear about it when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online with all of our episodes at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Carol Boss, and we're talking to three people who were moved to activism when gun violence entered their lives suddenly. So far, we've heard from a survivor of the Virginia Tech mass shooting, Colin Goddard, and Annette Nance Holt, the mother of 16-year-old Blair Holt, who was killed in an act of street violence in Chicago. Next to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where the parents of two young boys responded to the December 2012 shooting deaths of 20 young children and six adults at Connecticut's Sandy Hook Elementary School by forming a nonprofit organization of their own called Families for Peace to address the gun violence issues in their own state. Carol Boss talks with Scott Cameron in a moment, but first, some audio gathered at a community vigil Cameron set up on the six-month anniversary of the Sandy Hook shootings at Albuquerque's La Mesa Presbyterian Church in 2013. We hear the church reverend Trey Hammond and then Scott Cameron speaking. The 50 or so assembled there also viewed the Living for 32 film that featured Virginia Tech survivor Colin Goddard, whom we heard from earlier. Then they all participated in a town hall meeting and took part in more events throughout the weekend. We come tonight to remember the tragic events of December 14, 2012. We have come to grieve this tragedy and all tragedies where parents lose a child. We pray as well for those whose inner turmoil erupts in acts of destruction. We come now to remember all those who were lost in this time of silence. We will toll the bell a total of 28 times the names of all those children, teachers, and others who were killed that morning. Part of that grieving process, we also talked about wanting to do something, to not just feel that sadness, but to kind of transform that sadness into something more positive. Tomorrow, there's another event um, down at Martha's Garden. We're going to be doing a toy gun buyback at that event, really in the spirit of uh, you know Gandhi, who said, if you're going to have real peace in the world, you've got to start with the children. Scott, tell me what you have here. Uh, here we have some um, letter writing materials. Uh, there's a letter for the adults for um, our two senators and our Congresswoman Michelle Lujan Grisham. And then there's also a draft template for letters to the governor. This is from an organization whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's called ASK. And it stands for Asking Saves Kids. And the idea behind this is it's a simple little flowchart to get people in the mode of um, talking with their friends about, uh, just as you would if your kid's going on a play date and somebody has a pool, you know, you're going to ask them, you guys keep an eye on the pool? Do you have a fence around it? What do you do to keep my kids safe? The idea here is to get people in the mode of asking about, do you have a gun in the house? And if you have a gun in the house, what do you do to keep it away from your kids so your kids know how to handle it safely, doesn't have a lock on it, things like that. I think the statistic that I saw was 40% maybe of households with kids have guns in them. And just having the gun in the house in and of itself increases the chances of somebody getting killed by that gun exponentially, either by suicide or homicide. Um, so the idea here is to kind of, again, building some more safety around that. And then that's a flyer for the, uh, the event tomorrow, for the, the toy gun buyback tomorrow at Martha's Garden. When you put on an event, though, I think there's always a mixture of satisfaction and then anxiousness or disappointment that there aren't more people. Are you going through any of that? Right. Uh, 
Not really. I mean, I, you know, maybe a little bit, but honestly, since we've been meeting and since we've been talking to people and I have this email list, the turnout's been kind of sporadic. And so my expectations are not high. Um, I know people are busy. I know this is not fun work and I know it's hard for people to even talk about Sandy Hook still. Um, but to me, if there's two people here, there's, there's one other person here, that's making a difference, right? I mean, there's something that's going to grow out of that. And so I'm optimistic that, that that's what's going to happen. So I won't, I wouldn't let that stop me from doing it again. So, yeah, sure. The next day, after the vigil, we tagged along at Cameron's toy gun buyback event in Albuquerque. And so as you come in, on our right, we have the registration and sign-in, and there's a big box over here um, where we collect, we were collecting the guns from the kids. Um, and as you can see, we've got some in there. There's a pretty good selection of toy guns and little army trucks and stuff like that. A lot of the stuff is made by Nerf, um, or looks like it's made by Nerf. It's a lot of plastic, brightly colored, um, some of them pretty realistic in terms of um, this one, you know, holds a bunch of different bullets just like, you know, a real gun kind of does and it, and it, you know, as you shoot it kind of spins. Um, so some pretty realistic kind of stuff um, and as we walk over that way more there's more we took a bunch and hung them on the fence into the shape of a peace sign and there's a few on there that are particularly um, you know realistic and, and seemingly pretty aggressive pretty violent looking you know what who's this guy this is my son Brennan hey Brennan take my shirt off please no I don't want you to get a sunburn the people who are sitting here determine whether what they turned in is a small, medium, or a large gun, or if they turn in more than one, then that, you know, brings a small to a medium or whatever, and that determines what kind of incentive they would get for that. And then we had passes from It, from Cliffs, from Ice Cream for Ice Cream, swim passes to city pools, just a really wide variety of stuff for the kids to get in exchange for their guns. And what is your name? My name is Diana Dorn-Jones. I'm executive director of United South Broadway. And so this is what we see as an educational event. And, you know, there's a lot going on about gun control and those kind of things. And we're not taking a position necessarily on that. We're, we have concerns. But we know that we need to start early. And start early, we start with children. And we want them and their parents to understand the implications of the message that needs to take place. And it starts at home. And at the end, you know, parents make the decisions about the kinds of things, the kind of toys that they allow their children to have. And so we're asking parents, think it through a little bit. What, what, are, the, what are the long-term impacts, especially in the society that we live in today? And so we're really happy that we have a really good turnout. We've been supported by the business community. So United South Broadway and Families for Peace came together and said, we need to do something. You know, it's a community response to these issues because we cannot wait around for legislation to take place. Our children are dying every single day from accidents and just not having a good understanding about what this thing means to have a, that t guns are not toys. And so it, it's, it's high time that across this country that there is something each of us can do and it starts in our own communities, our own neighborhoods. So that's what you see today, a coming together of people from across the city that may not have a lot in common in other ways. But what we do is we care about children and we care about their safety. So this is the first time because our inaugural event and we're hoping to keep this going. So it's, it's a good relationship and um, we're happy, we're pleased. Tell me your full name. Brennan James Cameron. And how old are you? Nine. All right, so your dad's involved with this bit about the toy guns. Uh, uh, how do you feel about giving your guns up? Have you given your guns up? I felt good and 
I knew it was the right thing, but I did feel a little tiny bit sad because the times we did get to play with him and nobody got hurt were pretty fun, but it's just the right thing to do. You don't want to get it in your head. Tell me more about that, get it in your head. What do you mean? Well, you don't want to get it in your head so you haven't, when you get older, you don't want to go to jail, you don't want to shoot somebody, you don't want to get shot. Is it hard because your friends still probably like to play with guns? You go over to your friends' houses and they still have them? A couple of my friends. A couple of my friends came here and brought their guns in. And with the violent video games, those are just, that's like you're a cop. That's just messed up. It's messed up because it's so violent? Yeah. Like those violent video games, like the ones with guns and stuff, most of them are really, really intense and just messed up. There are other video games that you like, though? Yeah, there are other video games like car racing games and sports games. So you, overall, you don't think you're going to miss the guns too much. You'll have enough fun with other stuff, huh? Yeah, and the exchange was pretty good. I, I got a Clish Pass an ice cream thing and a um and a movie thing and but i turned in like six or seven guns so it w- it's a good turnout i i think my dad had a good idea yeah i mean i guess i would say that um what keeps me active in this is you know i wake up every day and i see my own kids and i think about them and again they're the same age as those kids in Newtown so there's that I think there's also um, I think about what kind of world I want my kids to grow up in I think probably every parent has that feeling Uh, I remember after my oldest son was born having that oh no feeling of like what have we done like we brought another person into this crazy world and you know that almost that obligation to try and make things better for them and then I think on a broader scale, uh, just a, a real sense of uh, interdependence and feeling part of this bigger picture and this sense of responsibility to the world and to, you know, again, you know, my children, my family, my neighborhood, my community, you know, and then just expanding out from there and really feeling like, you know, part of my reason to to be here and, and, and I really think everybody's reason is to, you know, make the world a better place for everyone. And so this feels like an issue where um, there's a real opportunity to try and do that. And so why not? The reading names out over the radio All the folks the rest of us won't get to know Sean and Julia, Gareth, Anne and Breda Their lives are bigger than any big idea Jesus, can you take the time? Throw a drowning man alive, peace on earth. To tell the ones who hear no sound, whose sons are living in the ground, peace on earth. Peace on earth. They're more of U2's great song, Peace on Earth. Peace on earth.
and we heard from Scott Cameron of Families for Peace in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In our final moments today, back briefly to our Carol boss talking with Colin Goddard, one of the survivors of the Virginia Tech shooting of 2007 and active with the Brady campaign to end gun violence. It seems that every time there's a high-profile mass shooting, those who want to see some changes in gun laws think this is the moment. And yet, over the years, every moment seems to pass without much change. Why? That's a very good question. I heard Columbine was the shooting that was going to change everything. And then I heard Virginia Tech. This was it. Then I heard that several other times, from Tucson to Aurora to Oak Creek. And then, again, the refrain came after Newtown. You know, I think the kind of tragedy that the American public needed to see in order for something to change was the tragedy when the comprehensive background check bill failed in the United States Senate on April 17, 2013, when a minority of U.S. senators, only 45, were able to block the will of the majority, 55, and the majority of 90% of the American public in passing good public policy. It kind of shored me up seeing the outreach from people again and the anger that I felt was felt by so many other people. So many people saying, you know, you know, the elected officials who voted against this will come to regret this decision and we have to make it so. You know, people have to lose their seats over what happened. And I know that, you know, the paradigm has shifted in such a way that now the calculations on these votes on good gun policy is fundamentally different. This is not a light switch that happens that flicks overnight. This is a battleship that has to be moved. And it's moving. And it feels good that we've broken this issue loose again. And it's resonating amongst the public. To hear our complete interviews with Colin Goddard and all of our guests, join us online at peacetalksradio.com. You can also find a link to the Living for 32 film that tells Goddard's story at our website. Also at peacetalksradio.com, more links and resources on this topic as well as all of the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution going back to 2002. You can email us through that website, sign up for a free podcast or a newsletter, and learn how you can make a contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program. Find out at peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. The executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated is Nola Daves Moses. Allie Adelman composed and performed our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Music